In today's episode, we're going to talk about a shocking murder that happened in 1816, so just a little bit ago, in the small town of Louisville, New York, that made what papers were available at the time with some controversy about what really happened. Also, it led to something that happened for the first time ever in St. Lawrence County. I'm Matt. And I'm Zach. And this is Your Town Podcast. So as mentioned in the introduction, we're going to talk about a murder that happened in 1816 in Louisville, New York. It's spelled Louisville, but it's actually pronounced Louisville, and it's a small town in St. Lawrence County, which is in New York, which is obviously in the United States. Population is about 3,100 at about 13 years ago in the census that apparently never really gets updated. Town is reportedly named after French King Louis the 14th. 19th? What, what's 14? That's 14. Yeah, nailed it. Well, you you had me worried when you were like, yeah. Okay, nailed it. All right, I was practicing. And again, I, I obviously, as I'm saying, it's Louisville. You know what I mean? So I, I was right on the pronunciation. And the town of Louisville is in the northern border of the county and is west of the village of Messina. Not really a lot going on there since my favorite pizza place, probably in the North Country, Steve's gas is gone. It's a sad thing, man. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the local history there because of, you know, Steve's gas being gone. So uh, recipe, Steve gas pizza. I'm just super glad that I'm not the only person who remembers the absolutely amazing pizza from Steve's gas. So good. Rest in peace, Steve's gas pizza. As the kids would say, it was gas. It was. Let's get into this. Do it. Michael Scarborough, uh, which sounds like a, you know, maybe like a F1 formula racing name, wasn't, was born in Canada in 1785. He was one of the area's first settlers. They arrived after one of the most creative named wars of all time, the War of 1812. Michael Scarborough, like many others, served in the War of 1812. After the war, he built a life with his wife and daughters as farmers on the property of Routes 37 and 56. The exact property was actually once home to a local business named Flynn's Broster until they burned it down in a controlled burn in 2006. So if anyone has any shirt signs, business stuff, hit us up. That'd be pretty cool to throw mm-hmm. in the studio uh, a Flynn's Broster. I'd rep the brand. Yeah, let's rep it. So on the estate, there was once the, uh, obviously, Scarborough on 56, right past the present-day Stewart's, just like the controlled burn that took away the business in no time. Unfortunately, many lives were taken terribly and hopefully quickly in a very very horrific murder so let's tell you a little bit about scarborough he ran a pretty successful lumber business and often hired many people and kind of spent time traveling for business and you know stuff i don't really know more than why he would travel but being in 1816 not having a ton of options or trust for banks he was known like many other business owners allegedly i wasn't alive then but they keep a decent amount of cash hidden in the house one of Scarborough's employees, it's going to be a tough one, Jean Baptiste Gertel. I think it's John, but yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Oh, okay. Jean Baptiste Gertel. But he was known as Louis or Louis Conrad. That's going to, let's, let's, we're going to go with, I'm going to reference Conrad a lot more. So, same guy, different names. Uh, lived nearby and uh, obviously worked for Scarborough and he knew about the cash. He oddly enough knew a lot about the layout of the inside of the house and it was suspected but never convicted that he had help from his brother-in-law, Jean McHugh, who worked at the house and actually lived in the house. Like He he did a lot of stay in work for the family. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think they might even had a could have or did have a nickname. What that they're both Jean? Jean squared. Jean squared. That's a pretty good one. Yeah, I liked it. Scarborough set out on a business trip as he did often several times on February 21st. And the man with many names, Conrad, hid in the barn in the early morning to wait for his opportunity to rob the place. He then found his opportunity, reportedly entered the house with an unlocked door and went inside past where McHugh was in the house sleeping and into a room where Mrs. Scarborough and the two kids were asleep. Grabbed the money and what exactly happened next is unclear, but what is certain the wife, two children were brutally murdered. Uh, If it wasn't sick enough, it's alleged that before he left, he actually hung around the house eating sweets and food from their house in the scene of this brutal murder. So, so oddly enough, I've, this is actually a pretty common trope, uh, both in real life situations and in, in a popular fiction, Mm -hmm. this notion of making yourself at home amongst this horrible crime that you just committed is actually something that these homicidal maniacs, um, they've actually acted on bunches of times throughout history. Hmm. Uh, it, it, in mainstream media, if you're a reader like myself, 1981 novel Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, part of the Hannibal Lecter series. Um, and then later on in the 2002 film, uh, film adaptation of the novel starring Sir Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter, along with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Edward Norton. Rest in peace. Rest in Philip peace. Seymour Hoffman, a legendary uh, Rochesterian here from New York. But yeah, this this notion of... Like in Red Dragon, the the guy, the killer, he he walks around the home, he props up the you know his victims, and and in real life type situations, you know, in bed watching TV, he nice. makes food. Like it's it's a thing that, it's it's an odd thing that people, in these situations, I yeah. Don't wanna, I don't want to say like he's at the dentist. I mean, you know, no, but yeah, you know, people in this, that's that's a thing that's been recorded. It's a hmm. uncomfortably common ish. Hmm. Problems that I don't have. All right. So either way, neighbor Joseph Fields reportedly was the one that kind of found the horrific murder scene. And his son, David, actually told the details of this story 64 years uh, later in an article by the St. Lawrence Republican. Apparently, when Joseph was checking on the neighbors, nobody was answering. They were pounding on the doors and everything. Nobody answered. They actually lifted a small boy through a window to go see what was going on. Unfortunately, the poor boy saw everything, came back, reported and obviously probably wished he never would. Uh, man, I couldn't imagine. Yeah, like on what planet was that the right play? Like, I mean, you, you know, okay, all right, guys, listen, the Scarboroughs, no friggin' idea where they are. They're definitely not answering, but you know what'll fix this? A breaking and entering with a minor. I mean, you're not expecting to walk into a murder scene, you know what I mean? No. Pretty good people, you know the you know the family, they've they probably pretty decent people. But what what was weird to me, the first thing that popped in my head, not that I'm a detective or anything, was did you they, they must have checked the door and the door was then locked. They must have locked it on the way out because it was unlocked in, in many reports that you know the, the the crime report. So I don't know, must have been locked and it was probably easier. I mean it's gotta be cold. It's February. Well, not only that, like I it, my brain tells me that they really weren't that concerned with the safety of the people inside. They're like, oh well, like you know, like Matt, if I walked into the studio, mm-hmm. if I walked up to your house mm-hmm. and I knew you're supposed to be in the studio, mm-hmm. okay, and I knocked on the studio door. You weren't answering. Yep. But I heard Vern inside. Mm-hmm. Vern's the dog. But they didn't hear anything. Yeah, but they didn't hear But Vern's just, yep, 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 yep. And you're not answering. I try to call you. You don't answer. They couldn't do that back then. Yeah, well, yeah, I know. But I'm going to call your name. Mm-hmm. Maybe look in the house. Hey, where's Matt? He's not here. Eventually, I would just try to kick the damn door in. 
well, they're probably made of some pretty good stuff. I mean, I don't know. We weren't there, but either way, I don't know. Either way, Th throwing a lad through the window, I just don't think that's the right play. Yeah, well, all right. Let's keep her moving because yeah. I agree. It's not not the right play, but you see, you, you've seen this in movies or somehow. I mean, it's not like you're walking into a home alone house. Okay. It was worse. Conrad, the the man with many names, after, you know, uh, Joseph and, and the kid found the scene, he was found two hours later in St. Regis of all places. I'm not exactly sure how far St. Regis is from uh, Louisville, but I have to imagine that's a decent thing in, in the 1800s uh, i don't it's know how they almost an hour now you would have to think on horseback or something that's a pretty either way they found him and apparently he didn't stop talking while he was talking to the police and in custody he talked and talked told every single detail gory everything uh the fact that he was severely drunk um there, there was there was a lot of very gruesome gruesome details that we are going to leave out and it's not going to sell the story and it's just it's just gross because the the wife was 24 years old. They had a two-year-old, and then the other child was three months old that was murdered. So we don't want to get into the details of that because that's nasty. But one thing that was really interesting was the much different stories that were released. The 1816 Plattsburgh Republican, which was one of the only papers around at the time. And then in 1853, there was another book written by Franklin Hugh or how for um, how things happened, why it happened in, in some of the other uh, details of this murder were extremely different. And I'm not exactly sure how that is because he told every single detail to the police, but somehow the stories are very, very skewed. So again, uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on why this is and, you know, send us an email or, or shoot us a message on uh, the socials. Yeah. Uh, side note on the Plattsburgh Republican, though, because mm -hmm. as I've been doing research for this show, uh, not this one in particular, just all the episodes that we've done so yeah. far, this the Plattsburgh Republican has come up quite a bit. And like Matt said, it, it's often a place for disputed facts. Yeah. Uh, or there are a lot of like hasty misreportings. Um, mm -hmm. And it just makes me wonder where the money for the paper came from, because around this time um, in, in New York, especially the the rise of yellow journalism was really big. So all these papers uh, in an attempt to sell more papers uh, for profit, not necessarily for the freedom of freedom of, you know, free and accurate information. Yep. Uh, they would just make shit up all the time and they would just lie about stuff or embellish things. And so I'm wondering if I, I would be curious, but not surprised to see if the Plattsburgh Republican had financial ties to the William Randolph Hearst empire of, uh, of raggy newspapers, because it's, again, it's, it's been at least a half a dozen times now yeah. that the Plattsburgh Republican has came up. Like Matt says, probably one of the only major papers around. Yep. Um, I know the Watertown times in some very, in some form was in publication around that time, but I mean, you got Watertown and Plattsburgh. This is taking place Much probably in a dead zone between the two of them. Yep. So yeah, I, I'd be curious to see. I bet you the I bet you with enough research, I bet you the Plattsburgh Republican could be could be an episode of your town mm, in and of itself. There we go. All right. One thing though that all of the information did have um, that that was a little shocking to me is that Conrad, the man with many names, actually murdered his nephew three years prior out of greed. There was there was something going on. He didn't like the fact that the nephew was going to get some land or a property and murdered him doesn't appear that he was ever charged obviously he wasn't in jail at the time pretty wild and it didn't show up on the job interview with uh the scarboroughs so. yeah i mean 
But of all the different details from the Republican to the book that was written written, there was some things that they did all agree on. They did agree that he was caught arrested. He was tried at the county courthouse, uh, courthouse, which was actually located in Augsburg, New York at the time. He was tried in uh, July 3rd, 1816. The judge at the time was William Van Ness. Van Ness, probably. Van Ness. He pleaded not guilty, but the jury found him guilty on all three counts of murder, and he was sentenced to be hanged nine days later. It would actually be the very first execution in St. Lawrence County history. First off, props to the fortitude that it takes to admit very profusely to crimes and then look at the judge like now nah, wasn't me didn't do it secondly super interesting and again could be a potential future episode of your town podcast and i'm pretty sure if it wasn't st lawrence county it was somewhere in the greater north country tri quad county area mm-hmm. that the first ever execution by electric chair happened Ooh, I to, if it wasn't in st lawrence county somewhere i believe it was in danamora all right, let's make a note of that yeah, make a note of that make a note of that we'll, we'll talk about it. that's look at us look at us go st lawrence county just just killing people. Just killing people early in the game. Yeah, killing it. So <laughs> Sheriff Joseph York, much easier name to say, was given the assignment to cut the rope with his sword to perform the first execution in St. Lawrence County. Sometimes the first of anything doesn't really go as planned, and this was one of them. So he rolls up on horseback with his with his sword. He's just supposed to come up, just hit it, and it's just going to release him, and he's going to fall, break his neck, and he's going to die. That didn't happen. He went up, hit the sword. Didn't cut. Hit it again. Didn't cut. So he gets off the horse, grabs a hatchet, and just hacks it rope by rope by rope. And then it finally breaks, and he just kind of dangles there. What seems to be, apparently, forever. The crowd is kind of in awe because they were expecting a very quick process, and it wasn't. So there's a famous quote. The sheriff, he he just couldn't take it anymore. And, and as apparently he quoted, and it's famous, even though I haven't heard it. Maybe you have. He says, for God's sake, cannot someone put this man out of his misery? So apparently a young physician from Lisbon was up to the task, grabbed his feet, and gave him a good yank, and then broke his neck. And the crowd was actually very upset with this happening because they felt that he should have suffered a long, slow, painful death. So apparently... And this gets even more weird. In the court agreement, they were then to take him right over and cut him open on scene to make sure that he was officially dead. But there's reports that they're not even sure he was officially dead if he still had a pulse or whatever. But they cut him open right then, and he's dead. Yeah. Whether it was from the hanging or the cutting open, wild. But that notion of helping them, Mm -hmm. helping the, the condemned, uh, that was actually a thing. I'm not sure if it was a thing outside of Europe, but I'm pretty sure back in the day in, in Europe when these public executions were all of the rage, uh, judges, executioners, that sort of things would take bribes from families of the condemned. So that way, if the condemned was taking a little too long to expire, the family could assist the hanging man in this exact way. So basically, the all right, kids, let's go say goodbye to dad. Jump, Ooh. jump, yank, yank, snap, snap, you know. Yikes. Not that great, but hey, it's a thing. You know, love you, Dad. Yeah. I mean, you got this young physician. Now he's got to go back to work. The crowd's kind of mad at him. But, I mean, I just, I'm picturing this this scene, what's supposed to be, like, very serious, you know, the first execution. And in my brain, it's like some weird cartoon with, like, the Wild E. Coyote and the Roadrunner where he's got this whole plan, and it just... They must have had to remake this at some point. Just a terrible mm-hmm. um, situation that uh, 
happened. But uh, the, the site of the hanging was actually a tree facing Washington and Elizabeth Street in Augsburg, New York. So for anybody that was wondering, maybe keeping track or has some bets or whatever, one what kind of tree it was, it was actually an oak tree that was in the official report released by the St. Lawrence Republican in 1871. I don't know why they reported it like 60 years later, but they did. And apparently the old stump of that tree did remain there until the expansion of Patterson Street and the plow and scraper had thrown Washington Street into a well-rounded turnpike back in the day. Hmm. And ironically, from what I've been told, uh, I've kind of been talking to some local people about this episode, very excited to to kind of throw out there, is uh, apparently that tree where he was hung, um, like pretty much presently now, apparently there's a bishop that lives either right there or right near there. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, it's a little bit interesting. Yeah, and I, I was just walking my dog down Washington Street today, so I very well could have walked past that tree. You could have. And uh, also, apparently, for um, from what I've been told, actually, the first courthouse that we did reference earlier was actually where the post office is. And, and there's like an up okay. there was like an up there. There was a post office. There was I don't know if it was a funeral home. There was a couple of businesses in there where the, where the current post office is in that building, and that's where the county courthouse was uh, i know there's a hole upstairs at the post office here that's got a bunch of cool shit in it that i, I don't think it's open to the public though no I, I know the upstairs is full of cool stuff probably from the old courthouse because i guess that's where it'd be. that'd be a cool thing maybe maybe somebody can try to get us some ah, probably not in a post office we're probably not going to get a special piece. i think we i think we work with somebody that could get us into the post office okay let's do the thing yeah let's figure it out allegedly we'll allegedly try okay so the scarborough farm where the uh, site of the brutal murder was, then became the the Casa or Casa Farm from 1860 to 1909. From then on, the property has been very commercialized, having many businesses making it, you know, very tough to kind of remember the horrible crime that occurred in 1816. So uh, we do have a quote at the end of uh, the episode, but sources, one of the main sources, and I, uh, I want to give a shout out as well, is Murder in Mayhem in St. Lawrence County by Sherry L. Farnsworth. Uh, just a lot of cool stuff, and we're going to have some future episodes from there. I was able to read through it very easily, and a lot of the information did come from this, and uh, got a cool copy of it, even signed by Sherry or somebody that wrote sherry's name in there so that's pretty cool too and obviously a little bit of uh wikipedia there, there's always going to be a little wikipedia i don't know what you people do with your research without being able to uh to get on wikipedia so uh, again shout out to sherry farnsworth there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff from that book and uh there's another book that uh, is going to have some articles that was written by somebody local too that i'm excited too so i don't know if you want to uh if you have anything else to say or if you want to close it out with a quote let's just close it out let's do a thing the fear of burglars is not only the fear of being robbed, but also the fear of a sudden and unexpected clutch out of the darkness. Elias Kennedy. And that's it. It's episode five. We'll see you next week for episode six of the Your Town Podcast.